Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. We're Team Needham Discuss Everything Healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we are excited to have Gail Brecky uh, on our show today. She is going to be dis- discussing direct primary care. Um, as you guys know, if anybody's read my book, Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It, uh, one of the six-step solutions in Chapter 6 um, to fix healthcare is actually direct primary care. Um, I think it is a very, uh, very cost-effective, very inexpensive way. Insurance is what's made healthcare expensive. Insurance has made um, healthcare quality go down. Insurance has actually made healthcare service go down. Um, Direct primary care, we'll get into some more details with Gail, is um, a direct relationship between the patient and the healthcare professional. There's no third party involved and service and quality goes up and price goes down. So without further ado, Gail, welcome to our show. Thank you. I appreciate being here. So we were discussing before uh, the podcast kind of how you got into direct primary care. You were, sounds like you were an insurance actuary um, before, correct? Yes. Yeah. I am an actuary. I worked for almost 20 years um, for an insurance company and I just became more and more interested in healthcare because the more I paid attention to it, the more clear it became that we are expending a huge amount of effort to make healthcare better in this country. And as far as I can tell, what we're doing to try and improve it, the various reforms that we implement don't seem to work um, and don't seem to make things better. And as an actuary, you know, I think one thing that that I am constantly paying attention to is just the spending level. Um, that seems to be something that we always talk about. Every reform seems to be focused on lowering costs and lowering spending and get her, getting more uh, value for what we do spend. Um, so I just started paying more attention to the healthcare system and I came across direct primary care and was intrigued um, the first time I saw anything about it. So tell us what your definition of direct primary care is and what you're seeing out there in the marketplace. Yeah, so I define direct primary care or I think about it as a direct relationship between the doctor and the patient, like you said, um, where there's not a third party in the middle, there's not an insurance company um, in between the doctor and the patient. They together decide what should be done and take care of it. Um, And from an actuarial standpoint, that's really one of the things that intrigued me the first time I saw it is it makes so much sense to me as an actuary because it's how we do insurance and how we think about paying for other kinds of goods and services. We would never use insurance to pay for oil changes. And I know you say this all the time and a lot of people say this all the time, but as an actuary, it honors actuarial principles like um, insurable risk. Uh, We're not using insurance for things that are very affordable, very common, like primary care. Um, So that's really what intrigued me about it. And I started looking into it more and started talking to people and just became more and more interested to, to understand it even better. You know, I mean, you, you, you brought up some great talking points and I I just love it because you were preaching to the choir here and we've been, (laughs) you know, we've been living this model for 20 years 
plus years now, we have not built insurance in our pharmacy for over 20 years. And we realized because it, we, we, we just noticed we weren't really helping people. Um, you know, there were patients that were on 20 different medications and they weren't getting any better. Um, and when you compare health insurance to um, auto insurance, for instance, and you know, like you said, you know, our auto insurance doesn't cover our oil changes. And I've got a great video on that, by the way. I don't know if you've seen that yet. You will get a copy of it um, being one of our guests. My assistant will send one to you. Um, but one of the things is, is about what, what are your thoughts? And, and maybe I'm going down the wrong road right now, but being an insurance actuary, you, you probably, you realize this because you're a numbers person, but what are your thoughts about our healthcare system? And when people don't have skin in the game and it costs <laughs> them nothing that they have no responsibility for their own health, mm-hmm. how does that look overall with our healthcare expenditures? Is there, are we missing something or is that more important than some magic drug or magic uh, procedure that's going to fix everybody's health problems? Yeah, I think you're hitting exactly on something I've been spending a lot of time and putting a lot of effort into, and I term it as mindset. I talk about what are the the ways we think about healthcare. Some of it is just so common and so much a part of us as Americans that we don't stop and think about the fact that the way we tend to think about healthcare, the way society tends to think about healthcare, that it should just be provided to everybody, that it should be regardless of ability to pay or willingness to pay. It should just be something we should take care of each other and take care of everybody. And on the one hand, that sounds nice, but on the other hand, we don't do any other um, even necessary and vitally important goods and services. We don't ensure that people have enough to eat by putting everybody in the whole country or trying to put everybody in the whole country on one system of food right. distribution and requiring everybody to be part of some vast administrative uh, system, if you will. And I kind of put the word system in air quotes um, because that's you know a talking point for me or an item for me is that is it really a system and should we think about it as a system? But just taking the example of we don't ensure that the the low-income folks or the people that have hit uh, hard times in their life, that they have enough to eat by putting everybody in the whole country under a system of food distribution. We do, we do what makes sense. We do what works. And we've kind of forgotten that we should at least think about whether those same principles that work for distributing other important goods and services, whether that would work in healthcare. Um, so we kind of have this mindset in this country that healthcare is different than everything else. Um, the usual rules, the usual economic principles, the usual actuarial principles don't apply because it's somehow special or different. And I'm trying to get in the work that I'm doing on primary care mindset. I'm trying to bring some of those assumptions that we don't often think about. I'm trying to bring them to the forefront and challenge ourselves, challenge each other to really think about how we look at paying for medical care. Um, Because it's really the mindset of somebody else is going to take care of me. Um, I should be taken care of no matter what kind of decisions I make in my life. But again, we don't do anything 
We don't do that sort of thinking with any other good and service, food or transportation or shelter or anything else that we need. Um, So I think, you know, maybe as an actuary or maybe just as, you know, somebody that's really looking for the right solutions, the things that will work, you know, I always am trying to look at what really works. Um, and, And I think we we tend to not really ask that question with healthcare because we're so busy um, talking about, you know, kind of the latest um, terminology or we're busy worrying about, you know, social determinants of health or, you know, some of these other, other things which do have some meaning and do have some value, but are a little bit more like buzzwords sometimes. Um, And the whole, apparatus of healthcare um, and healthcare research, healthcare uh, reform, people that work in healthcare is is sometimes very focused on narrowly focused. And I'm trying to broaden how we think about it and make sure we're thinking about healthcare the way we think about other things. I, I will tell you, and one of the things, and my, my book's called Sick and How the Government Ruined Healthcare and, and, and How to Fix It. And you know, one of the things that we I talk about in there is that free markets is what's going to fix healthcare, not some universal government plan. I mean, the government already plays pays for eighty percent of all healthcare. So if we think it's broken, and if people think it's broken, then how are they going to fix it when they already pay for that much of it? Um, and and the reality of it is, is healthcare is just like any other industry, and we need to let the free market work. Being a, an actuary. I was on a, I was on a podcast with somebody last week and he mentioned that I think it was him it might have been somebody else I talk about this so much I don't I don't remember but you know in um if you were an insurance actuary Gail I don't know if you were in just healthcare or did you do auto insurance and did you do uh a, um um uh home insurance also So um the actuary industry um, in the United States is divided into two pieces. One is the life and health side, which is the side I'm credentialed on. The yeah. other side is like car insurance, liability insurance, that sort of thing, which is the casualty actuarial side of the house. And I'm not credentialed on that side. Um, so I'm on the life and health side. The company I worked for did employee benefits, but non-medical benefits. Um, so I wasn't um, a medical benefit or a medical insurance actuary, but we did dental, life, um, critical illness, disability, um, the kinds of coverages that are what we termed ancillary benefits for employee benefits. Um, So not the medical piece, but the other pieces. Um, And, you know, you're exactly right that um, I think actuaries should play an important role in how we think about healthcare. I, I feel like actuaries should speak out more and have more um, more times or more willingness to get involved or to lend our expertise to the broader healthcare discussion of how, especially how we pay for healthcare. Um, I think we have a lot to add. Well, yeah, absolutely. And and let's just since we've already used the auto analogy, let's just use the auto analogy with with health health insurance analogy. So, um, and and I imagine even though you're not certified as a uh, you know, an actuary in um, auto, I, I think you can probably relate to this and probably comment on this. So um, if somebody gets, if somebody is a, gets a drunk driving ticket, uh, their insurance rates go sky high, right? 
Yep. Right. So maybe should 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 smokers, should people that are, you know, drink in excess, um, do drugs, should people that are obese, should they pay higher health insurance premiums? I mean, those, those are questions <laughs> so, we have to I mean, ask ourselves. Yeah, I think we do need to ask ourselves those questions. Um, smoking status is one of the few lifestyle factors, if you will, that um, the Affordable Care Act and other um, things that we have in place for healthcare in this country, they do allow rating to vary by smoking status. Um, it cannot vary by some of the other things you mentioned. Um, but I think it's a great question that we should be more open to discussing and having dialogue about in this country is that so much of our healthcare costs are connected to lifestyle factors. Um, and in my view, I think we've done a disservice by trying to get rid of a lot of those, the usage of a lot of those factors and not so much from the standpoint of, you know, we want to penalize people that aren't making good choices, but just to make the connection in people's mind that you are responsible for your own health. Um, and I think the way we think about healthcare in this country, I think we're, we, try to think about it as we're helping people, but by removing all of the connections of your own choices and your own behavior from the healthcare, from your health and the subsequent healthcare that you use, I don't think in the end that that's, that's really helping us because it, it kind of perpetuates the notion that, um, you know, everybody's just entitled to as much healthcare as they need or want without regard to your own choices. Um, where, you know, lifestyle choices and things like that certainly are a huge part of what your health will be and what your health expenses will be. Absolutely. I think Janet has a pretty good story about why we changed our practice based on, based on that story of, um, of ena enabling somebody, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, 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 hate to even bring it up because it brings up this culture in our society right now where it is it is like you are a bad person if you tell somebody that your lifestyle is going to kill you and you know over the years as being a healthcare professional and a provider to many clients you know we have seen we've seen the other end of it like what happens to somebody when they choose a lifestyle of of becoming and staying morbidly obese mm -hmm. and you know it's not about shaming someone it's about the fact that it's it, it can cost you your life and i have one client in particular that i i enjoyed her thoroughly i loved talking to her and taking care of her and patty called me and said um Thanks for all the services and all the things that you did for me. I just wanted you to know that I'm I'm failing and I'm dying. And she was 50 oh. years old and she was over mm. 500 and some pounds. And you know what? It, to me, it was a wake-up call to me as a healthcare provider because I started thinking, you know, all the sacks and medication that went out the door with this lady, never once did we talk about, hey, Patty, you need to lose some weight. This is going to yeah. cost you your life. Hey, Patty, you need to get moving because staying in that hospital bed, you know, I mean, and I could keep going on and on. The, the fact is, is that we're doing a disservice, whether we are, are wanting to admit it or not, lifestyle 
makes a difference as to how your life plays out. Mm-hmm. End of story. I mean, it could be the grave. It could be like we have people that um, uh, in our community, you know, they're losing their eyesight because of diabetes and, and uncontrollable blood sugars. And, and, you know, I could keep going on and on. And these decisions that we make in our life play out. There's mm-hmm. consequences. And some of them are ugly and sad. Absolutely. And, and to me, this issue is a great example of what is so wonderful about direct primary care. So one of the things that I look at and that I study with regard to direct primary care is that it's about the doctor-patient relationship, it's about time together, and it's about trust. And that's the situation that all of us, frankly, need a strong doctor-patient relationship with someone we regard highly, we trust them, they trust us. It's mutually beneficial. Um, I think that's something that that uh, a lot of folks that study healthcare or work in the healthcare system don't think about a relationship, a business relationship, a relationship between somebody that provides a service and somebody that receives the service and and pays for the service through usually a monthly membership fee in the case of DPC, but it's beneficial to both. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. If you were a terrible patient and you were, you know, cussing out the nurse every time you called the practice, the doctor is going to fire you from the DPC practice and they, they should rightly so they should fire you as a, as a, you know, patient who is abusive. Um, On the other hand, if you're the patient and you can never get in to see the doctor. They treat you badly. Um, you know, whatever it is, you're not going to continue with that person in a business partnership, in a business relationship, if you're not getting something of value to you in return. So it's it has to be mutually beneficial. And I think we lose sight of that when we focus so narrowly on healthcare. But if you step back and think about any other person that you hire whether it's a plumber or a tax attorney or what, whatever sort of person it is, you're going to only hire them or you're going to only buy your groceries that you want at the grocery store if the quality and the, the price and the service and it's agreeable to you, you're going to give them your money and they're going to accept it and be willing to sell you that for the price that is that works for them. So it's mutually beneficial. And I think we tend to not think about things like that in healthcare, but direct primary care kind of reminds us that the relationship needs to be beneficial for both. And the to me, the directness of it, the fact that you don't have an insurance company in the middle, you don't have somebody poking their nose in and telling the doctor that they need to do X, Y, and Z when um, whether it's about reimbursement or about you know paperwork or something else, it's just the patient and the doctor. Um, and I have a, a doctor friend of mine use an analogy where he said, all that you need for good primary care or most of what you need um, for good primary care is two chairs. So he talked about, it's really about two people sitting down together and talking and getting to know each other building that trust. So in the case of of the person you were talking about, Janet, you were talking about your your uh, your client, uh, for lack of a better word, your patient. And um, 
you know, feeling like you were sad that, you know, she had made the choices she had made. And, you know, I think it it just brings to mind that we really need these doctor-patient relationships where people trust each other. The doctor has built trust with the patient so they can say, you know, I'm really concerned about your your long-term health here. You know, what's going on? Why is this such a struggle? And they can really make headway with a lot of those problems that plague Americans just just broadly, um, whether it's weight or something else. Well, you hit on so many good points there. And, and I don't think, you know, you mentioned, you know, that, um, you know, a customer you know, it's transactional and, and both parties have to be, have to benefit. And I think, I think consumers of healthcare patients are so used to service being horrible, i.e. they can't get in for months to see their primary care doctor, or they can't find one. Um, and their primary care doctor, um, takes five minutes with them. Mm-hmm. I think they're so used to that service. They don't think there's anything else that exists. So that's why it's yeah. so important that we need to educate people about direct primary care and that insurance is what caused this problem. So insurance is not going to fix this problem. The best way to fix it is, is patients directly interact with a direct primary care physician. And it's not expensive. In fact, it's less expensive than, than insurance healthcare. And in fact, it's less expensive than most people pay for a copay. Can you um, mm-hmm. talk about that? Sure. Yeah, I have a, um, a white paper, I guess you could say, or an ebook um, that was produced through the Mises Institute. And in that, I looked at some different angles, you know, kind of with my actuary hat on, but I looked at some different angles of why primary care is less expensive when paid for directly. Um, So I looked at the direct costs versus the cost when you use insurance to pay for it, all the overheaded ads to use insurance, all the paperwork it adds because you have this entity in the middle that requires you as a physician, you as a primary care doc, it requires you to do all of these things for their check boxes and their approvals and their measurements and their, you know, they're quantifying what's going on in the healthcare system. But very little of that, if any, makes any difference at all to patient care. But like you say, it adds dramatically to the costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also look at the incentives that are created and the behaviors that change when you're having this third party in the middle, when you're not dealing directly with each other. Um, It makes the physician behave differently. It makes the patient behave differently. And all of that adds to the problems. And in my view, gets us off on the wrong foot Um, because I look at primary care as being the beginning of healthcare or the foundation of healthcare. Um, it's where the bulk of care should happen, and it's where you have that that fundamental relationship, or you should have, with a provider, a, a caregiver that knows you um, and is working with you to to meet the goals that you have for for your life. You know whether you're trying to be more mobile to you know be able to play with your grandchildren for longer, or or some other kind of goal in your life with your health. Um, but it really, it really is about getting the patient off on the right foot in the healthcare system, and so they're thinking differently about their health and about how to pay for healthcare from the beginning. And I think it it affects everything downstream of there. 
It affects specialty care. It affects hospitalization. Um, it affects overall spending. Um, so that's a lot of the reason why I'm focusing so much on direct primary care is in a lot of ways, it fixes all of the challenges that we have with primary care from doctor burnout to you know waiting a very long time to get in with your with your doctor to five or ten minute appointments. Um, and it just gets everything off on the right foot for all downstream care too. So I think it's a powerful, a powerful piece of of change that we need. Absolutely. And and thank you for you know, for getting the word out. And one thing I think we need to realize too is that this is not a new concept. Jan and I talk about this all <laughs> the time. I mean, direct family practice doctors, general practice doctors, uh, direct primary care doctors, they were practicing like this in the 50s and 60s normally. It wasn't until Medicare came out that this all got screwed up. And mm -hmm. when you talked about it starts with direct primary care, most things can end with, with primary care. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Back in the old days, you know, your, your primary care physician, they took care of all of it. They delivered babies. They did appendectomies. They did broken bones. They did stitches. They did it all. They did earaches. Now, I mean, you get an eye infection and they want to send you to an ophthalmologist or you get an ear infection. They want to send you to ENT because of the insurance model. It's really increased the utilization of specialists mm -hmm. and probably unnecessarily. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah, that's a really good point that that it really should start and a lot of times end there. Um, and I see, because um, I am fortunate enough to know quite a few people that, are, that practice in direct primary care, both, you know, on the doctor side, on the nurse side, you know, people involved, you know, as an employer that has engaged with, with DPC um, for their employees. Um, so I hear a lot of stories and, and, and things about, about how things actually work in, in DPC and, you know, there's some some amazing and wonderful stories about DPC doctors who help patients. You know, maybe it's an uninsured patient or has some other kind of challenge. Maybe they do need a surgery. And, um, you know, there are stories about a doctor trying to, to work with a hospital or a surgery center to get two things scheduled on one day because the patient was paying out of pocket. They wanted to pay for the, the operating room once if there was not a medical reason to have two separate operations on two yeah. separate days. So, I mean, it's, it's wonderful because the incentives of the DPC doctor and the patient are aligned. They're on the same team. Um, so it's, that's how you get win-win situations. And that's what we all need more of. And, and I think that's one of the great things about DPC doctors. And one thing I, I tell patients all the time, DPC doctors, they, they, they try to get the best quality price and service for a patient, whether it be x-ray, whether it be MRI, whether it be uh, medications. And, and they know they have a network of people they work with to find what is the best for them. And, mm -hmm. and I, will, I say this to patients, if you go into a doctor and they don't know the price of what they're doing or where they're referring you to, Go somewhere else, period. You, you, you wouldn't check into a hotel without knowing what price it is. You wouldn't buy a new car without, without knowing what the price it is. Why should it be any different with healthcare? And even if your insurance is paying it, you should know because in the end, you're responsible. And sometimes when things aren't covered, you're going to pay eight times what you could if, if you were paying directly. So mm -hmm. you got any comments on that, Gail? 
No, I, I think that's, that's totally right. Um, and again, I think you're, you're underlining the point that we benefit and we make things better in healthcare when we understand that it's like other goods and services. Right. It's not some different thing that we should use, that we should take all the things that we know about other goods and services, whether it's you know a hotel room or buying a car or whatever, um, we should take all of that and put it aside because healthcare is different because um, it really isn't. Um, we we go a long way to solving our problems when we use the same thinking um, for for all goods and services. Absolutely. So, Gail, I heard to help uh, educate people about direct primary care, you have a podcast. Tell us about your podcast. Yes. My podcast is Nurturing the Heart of Family Practice, and it's really geared for family doctors. Um, I think there's a lot of good podcasts out there now for people who already know they want to switch to DPC or are in the process of switching or who have switched. I think that's, you know, I feel great about all the different folks that are out there talking about DPC from that angle. Um, I'm looking to to uh, make an impact with folks who either don't know about DPC, um, and this is primarily family docs, I think are the the biggest target audience I have at first um, be, for a number of reasons. I think DPC fits the best with family docs, mm-hmm. um, people with that kind of very generalist training um, that are from that sort of a, of a, you know, background or that they have the, the kind of training and the way of thinking about it, that they're trying to take care of the whole family. Um, I think that's really the very best fit and there are just so many, uh, so many folks in family medicine, whether they're kind of more on the academic side and training up, you know, doctors coming along, um, new new med students and such, or whether they're, you know, kind of more uh, experienced and entrenched in the system. Um, but you know, I have just read so many uh, papers and so much research about how difficult things are for family doctors and, and really all physicians and, and all caregivers um, are struggling, I think, with, with how dysfunctional our system is. But family doctors in particular, I think, have gone to medical school really to help people. Um, they've resisted going into some specialty that is super high paying um, to make the most that they can and pay off their, their student loan debt really quickly um, they've taken the more, um, I'm not sure what the right words are. They, they've they've stayed away from the kind of the lucrative specialists, specialties yeah. and have really just wanted to help people. And they're perhaps the most burdened by all of the, the things that happen when you try to practice in the system because the system is... It, it's the insurance and it's it's the the structure of the system that makes it so that they only have five or eight minutes to take care of a patient, that they have to click all these boxes on the EMR if they're going to get paid, and and all of that is what they're so miserable about. Um, and really, DPC um, is is the way out of of the career of the profession that they have that is not turning out the way that they wanted is not what they envisioned when they went to medical school. Um, One of the reasons I became so 
intrigued and interested in DPC was I went to a DPC summit, you know, a number of years ago now, but the doctors were so excited about about the way that they practice and the way they take they can take care of people and how much better it is than what they used to do if they used to be in the system. And um, it was just it was just amazing. I mean, everybody you would come across, everybody you would talk to, couldn't tell you quickly enough how much they loved it. Um, so I just had to learn more and had to really see what what it was about. We've we've met DPC doctors from all over the nation, and I can I, I can I can say this with pretty much one hundred percent fact is that I've never met a DPC healthcare professional that doesn't like what they're doing. <laughs> and and I can pretty much say this too. I've never met a doctor that's practicing in traditional healthcare that likes what they're doing. I mean, they, they don't. Just like you said, they're checking the boxes for EMR. They're being told what to do by a, by an insurance company. They've got no no individual control over their over their own practice whatsoever. Or even yeah. how they take care of a patient. They're told what to prescribe, what surgery to prescribe, what specialists to send their patients to. They've got no autonomy whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine going to medical school for eight years. You know, you go to you go to school for eight years plus residency, and then you're told what to do most of the time. That's not very fulfilling. I, it doesn't seem to me like it would be. You know, so I'm glad for direct primary care. I'm glad you're getting the word out. Um, tell us as we wind this up, Gail, what is your passion? What <laughs> your passion for? I think it's, it's really DPC. It's really helping people to think differently so that we can improve the results we get in the healthcare system. Um, it's really promoting dialogue. Um, I think that's, you know, something that has really struck me for many years. Um, and I think, if anything, our politics just gets worse and worse in terms of do we even have any dialogue at all, or is it just one side throwing rocks at the other side, and who can whoever can badmouth the other side the most is going to be in charge for the next four years? Um, yeah. That's not how we get things going better and get better results from healthcare. We have to we have to think more critically, we have to ask better questions, we have to examine our assumptions that we have about how healthcare should work. Um, we have to, you know, talk together and and uh, generate ideas and try new things and um, there's so much opportunity to improve healthcare. Um, it's just a very exciting time I think to be doing this. Because there's um, there's so much room for improvement. I agree with you 100. It, it's exciting time. Um, th- there's a, a you know a, a revolution going on in healthcare, and I think that patients and doctors need to take charge of their own health and their own healthcare system. And like one DPC doctor told me on one of our podcasts, is order to, in order to change the system, you got to get out of the system. Oh, totally, so, totally. Yeah. So get out, get out of the system. Patients find DPC doctors. Doctors go DPC. Get out of the system. I talk about it in my book. If doctors want to fix healthcare, lobbying. I'm, I'm, I'm not apologizing for this. I was going to say I'm sorry, but I'm not. <laughs> but lobbying to the government is not going to work. Um, you need to just get out of the system. And there's a way to do that and work directly with your patients. So if doctors mm-hmm. aren't happy, that's what they need to do. So, um, Gail, as we as we wrap, wrap this podcast up, what's the best way to get a hold of you if anybody has any questions? 
My email address is hello at primarycaremindset.com. I'm very happy to talk more about all of these issues because I think it's just really important and we have to keep talking about everything. Absolutely. Our goal of this podcast is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health, and that includes financially. And Mm -hmm. I think you've helped us realize that goal today. So thank you so much, Gail. Hang on for after the podcast because I've got some questions to ask you. Um, In the meantime, listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Thursday, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., Pacific Standard Time, our midweek podcast. We have Gabriel Rinch on our podcast, back on our podcast. Um, He is going to be talking about the most recent decision of of his. He was arrested a few years ago, about three years ago, in Moscow, Idaho. He was arrested for singing in public. Yes, you heard me right. It was illegal to sing in public, especially in a group of people. And so they violated his religious right because he was singing worship songs, his freedom of speech, and his freedom to assemble. And guess what? He sued the city of Moscow, and guess what? It took him three years, but he won. He won, and he won big. So now we're going to have him back on our podcast, and he is going to talk about how he fought City Hall literally and won because he stood up for his First Amendment right, which we all should do and not be afraid to. So thank you, Gabe. We're excited to have you on the podcast. Listeners and viewers, tune in, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Thursday, our midweek podcast, Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you.